Today's reading is in the 8th chapter of Romans, beginning at the 28th verse. Feel free to uh, follow along in a Bible you brought yourself, or one in the pews, or just be blessed by listening. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father God, for showing us that whatever craziness that happens in this world or this country, where today's satire is tomorrow's reality, you are the constant and unchanging God, and nothing in this world can change the plans that you have for those who have rested their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for being the anchor through the trials, disappointments, and hurts of our personal lives, giving us comfort, assurance, and healing. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship you in music, in the reading of God's word, and the preaching of the same. Thank you for our pastor who loves us, who loves you and loves your word. Please put in his mind and his heart what you would have him teach us. And let us have ears to hear and take to heart the message. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. So glad that each one of you could be here with us today on this Lord's Day, this 5th of February. This week was an interesting week. Um, I think you're all aware of that balloon that was flying over our country. And uh, whether it's a spy balloon or a weather balloon, who really knows? But, you know, I, I thought of this thing because part of the concern was, what is that balloon watching? 
You know, is it watching our military institute in, in places? You know, what, what's it doing? Well, I don't know. But I, but I thought of how God watches every single thing and knows every single thing and, and, and is concerned and cares. And I, and I just thought, wow, this is, this is really amazing. We have a God who's like, and just as no things, he, he cares, he plans for things, he knows the past, the present, and the future. It's a wonderful thing that we have a, a God in heaven who is like that. Today we want to talk about, I believe, a very important subject, insurance of salvation. There's a lot of, of debate, discussion, disagreement about this subject of assurance, about salvation. And God wants us to know, he wants us to believe, he, he wants to understand what he says on this subject, this subject of salvation. He wants to be absolutely certain about the essential truths of salvation. He wants us to have convictions. He wants us not to be swayed. He wants us not to be confused by the lies of the devil. Last week we focused on Romans uh, 3, 20 to 28. I'm not going to look at that again, but that was our text, and we want to continue on this theme here. Romans 3.28 talks about how we're not saved by our works, but by faith. That is, by trusting in Christ. Not trusting in our works, but trusting in Christ's work, that he died on the cross, that he paid for our sins, that he rose then again from the dead. We also learn that what God does for us is by his grace. That is, it's a gift. It costs us nothing to be saved. Read that, that, those verses that God has propitiated, a word that means that God is satisfied. And I like this. God is satisfied, completely satisfied by what Christ did for us. And therefore, he can justify us, redeems us, he makes us ones who are righteous. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at a lot of thoughts today, many, many thoughts that relate to this salvation and our assurance of salvation. We're going to start here. Ephesians chapter 1. Very important verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Then verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We learn a lot of things here. I'm just going to summarize it. We learn that God chooses ahead of time those he wants to save. We see there that he loved us before this world was ever made, and he predestined people for salvation. And the result of being saved, it says, is that we're adopted into God's family, become his children. We read that we're redeemed, which means that God owns us. He possesses us. We read that we're forgiven, which means that our guilt is taken away, and we're completely holy then in God's sight. We also learn that God gives us his spirit, his spirit then actually indwells us and permanently so. And the spirit is God's promise and is pledged to us as verse 13 and 14 says that he will finish the work that he started in us. He will complete it. Then someday he'll bring us to heaven. He'll glorify us, give us a brand new body. We also talked last time about how our salvation is secure. We can't lose our salvation. If you're truly saved, 
If you're truly saved, you can't lose your salvation. It cannot be taken away. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And today I want to look at many more thoughts, and I'm just going to really cover a few. There's so much that could be said on this subject. But I want to look at a lot more truths about this that make it clear that we cannot at all lose our salvation. First of all, there's many verses that make it very clear that we can't lose our salvation. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We read this last week, but it's a, it's a classic one. It's an important one. John chapter 10. In verses 27 to 30, John 10, 27, says they're my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so it says here very clearly, those who are saved have eternal life. Eternal life, by definition, lasts how long? Eternal life is what? It's eternal. It's very simple. This verse, this phrase is enough alone to prove that, hey, we are saved and saved forever. We cannot then lose our salvation. But then it also goes to say that, that we will never perish, verse 28. If you have eternal life, you never perish. You never go to hell. Never punished for your sins. That's what it says. And then it goes on to say, and it just keeps, again, the truth. No one can snatch us out of Christ's hand. More than that, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one, working together to secure our salvation, to guarantee that we are saved then and saved forever. Once we're saved then, we're always saved. That's, that's the point. 1 Corinthians 1.8, another verse. God will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will do it. This says you'll be blameless on the day Christ comes with that back, and that's because God is the one who keeps you saved. He keeps you secure. He keeps you blameless. He's the one that does that. Hebrews 13.5 says, God himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's pretty strong. To lose our salvation means that, spiritually speaking, that God will leave us. But God doesn't leave us. He's always with us. always keeps us safe. Turn to Psalm 73. See what this says about our salvation. And this is one of my favorite verses. I think somebody says a family. It's like a family verse. Our whole family loves these verses and what it says. Verse 23, Psalm 73, verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. We have the presence of the Lord, their relationship with God. It says, you have taken hold of my right hand. He has taken hold of our hand. It's not like we're holding his hand. You all know this idea about a parent holding his child's hand going across the street. The parent has got the child's hand. That little child's not going anyplace. God's got us. It says then, 24, with your counsel you'll guide me, and afterwards receive me to glory. Great verses about the security of our salvation. And it goes on to say, whom have I in heaven but... You and beside you, it is there nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength and the portion of my strength and the portion of my heart. He's my strength and my portion forever and ever. That's what he is. So he's our strength. He's the one that keeps us going. Jude 24, a verse you know. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great glory. So God will keep you from stumbling. It means he'll keep you 
then. He will not let you lose your salvation. He will make sure that he make he will make sure that you make it through this life and after this life then you will be with the Father in heaven. That's what's going to happen. Another verse. Second Corinthians chapter one. I'll just read these, but you can turn there. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses twenty one to twenty two. And when you think about this subject, then as you read God's word, and particularly the New Testament, you'll find so many verses that relate to this truth here. 2 Corinthians chapter 121. Now he who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. God is the one who establishes us. And it goes on to say, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Again, words that convey this truth of security of our salvation. Another verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4:18, it says the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. God will protect you, he will guard you, he will rescue you from all the snares and traps of the devil, and then it says he'll bring you home to heaven. That's what he'll do. Again, a verse that that, that speaks of this. Psalm 144, verse 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the Lord, my loving kindness and my fortress, my shield, my stronghold, my deliverer, he in whom I take refuge. Five words that speak of this security that we have. He says he's our fortress, our stronghold, our deliverer. He's our, our shield, our refuge. All words, all words. God's going to keep us. He's going to keep us. And so, God never says you can lose your salvation. That's, that's what I need to point out here. But he keeps saying you're going to keep your salvation. That is, this is for those who are true believers. You won't lose it, but you'll keep it. That's what he says. He, he, never, he says he'll, he'll make sure that you don't lose your salvation, and he will do what it takes so that you can keep your salvation. That's what we understand. So that first point, there's these verses. That's the first overall point that God himself tells us that we won't lose our salvation, but he'll keep us strong to the end. The second overall point is the work to secure our salvation was completed by Jesus Christ. John 19.30, simply, Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his, his head and gave up his spirit. And so the, the work to pay for all our sins was completed, was finished by Jesus Christ on the cross. He died on the cross. He paid for our sins. He rose again from the dead. And there's nothing else that he or anyone else needs to do. It's done. It's done. It's a done deal. That's what's going on. And so, again, you must know that obtaining salvation is not what you do or anyone else does, but what Christ does and what Christ then did. He did all that needed to be done to pay for our sins. It was finished when he was on the cross 2,000 years ago or so, and he said, it is finished. I love those words. It's finished. It's done. The work to pay for our sins is completed. Turn to Isaiah. More, More verses that talk about this work of Christ. We're talking about the work that Christ did to secure our salvation. It's not just that he says it, but he actually did it. There's much in Isaiah 53, but just a few verses to look at. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, is probably, the, there's no doubt, the single best chapter in the Old Testament on, on our salvation, on the gospel. I mean, it's just amazing what it says. But verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. See those past tense verbs? Past tense. He did it. He did it. 
Then we go to a couple more here, verses 10 and 11. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. So Jesus Christ, he suffered, he died for us, he bore our iniquities, he paid for our sins. He took our guilt upon himself. And therefore, therefore, once we're saved, we're fully and forever saved. It says he will see his offspring there. And if Christ died for us, then he'll see you in heaven. He'll see the ones whose sins he bore, the ones whose guilt he took upon himself. That's what it's telling us. Go to some other verses that talk about this furnished work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The key point there is he sat down. It means he's done. One more verse, there's, there's a couple more here in Hebrews, I'll look at one more. Hebrews 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point, says, the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So Jesus Christ at this very second is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He did the work on this earth, then he went to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what took place. An Old Testament priest, and there's many of them throughout the years, was offering sacrifices. And he'd offer all these sacrifices and all these sacrifices. And while he was offering sacrifices, well, that was his duty. He couldn't sit down. But, but it was also true that, that these sacrifices done by these Old Testament priests were foreshadowing the time when Jesus would offer himself as a full and final payment for our sins. And then he sat down. That's what he did. So he had these Old Testament priests way back in the past foreshadowing here is Christ. Christ did the work. He went up to heaven, and he sat down. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. The work then is done. So that's the second point. The work to see our cure of salvation is, is completed, completed, finished by Jesus Christ. The third point is God gives you his spirit is, as a pledge. His promise to you that, that is that he'll complete your salvation and bring you to heaven. And the spirit is the pledge, the promise of that. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. But John 14, 16, 17, says there, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And the helper he's talking about in that context is the Holy Spirit. So do you see this? Well, let's, well, let's I think i got to read it first. You have, to, you have to see it from the text. John 14, you can listen, I'll just read it. John 14, verses 16, in 17. It says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. But here's the point. He says he'll, the Spirit will be with you forever, right? So if he's with you forever, what does that mean? That means you have salvation forever. You, you can't miss this point here. The Spirit is given to you forever. We go then to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20.
Verses 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So God bought you by the blood or by the death of his own son. He paid for all your sins. That's what he did for you. So what that means then is God now owns you. It's a good way to think about life is God owns you. You are his possession, and he gives you his spirit as a pledge, as, as, as a promise, as proof that he owns you, that he'll keep you, that he'll never, ever leave you, that he'll always be with you and then bring you safely to heaven. Then Ephesians Go back to Ephesians. You need to see this point here. We've looked at this before, these same verses, but there's another point I want to illustrate here. We're talking here about, about the Spirit is given to us as a pledge. Verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. This is Ephesians 1, 7. Now, here you have to understand, the context here makes it very clear. The context is that you are spiritually redeemed when you are born again, when you are saved. Spiritually Okay, so redemption, is that's how it's translated. Then you go to verse 14, and it says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, well, verse 13, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. There, this word redemption is talking about physical redemption. That's what it's saying. We're spiritually redeemed. We're born again. It's a spiritual thing. We're physically redeemed at the end of this age of Christ's coming, and that's when we get our brand new body. That's what we understand. Chapter 4, verse 30. 430 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, talking about the future. You're sealed for this day in the future, this day of redemption, when you'll be physically glorified, given a brand new body. That's, that's what we understand there. The next point is this. This comes from Romans, but I'll just make this statement. No, no power, no person, no devil, no demon can undo your salvation, can somehow do something to make you unsaved so that, it, so that you don't go to heaven. Instead, go to hell. So this is the, the proof, truth of this as Christians. You know, we're saved and we believe we're on our way to heaven. Is there anybody that can cause things to be reversed? So that's not true. No, not at all. Romans chapter 8. Jeff read this, but I want to read this again. Those Romans 8 verses are really important. I mean, every verse is important in the Bible, but some are ones you need to really hang on to. And these verses in Romans chapter 8, verses, well, the whole chapter, but 26 to the end of the chapter are very important. But here we'll look at verse 31 to 34. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died this rather who was raised and is at the right hand of God who also then intercedes for us. So no being, no power can bring a charge against you, can somehow accuse you of something and make it stick so that then you are not saved. You're not then going to heaven. That's the point. But then this last verse. He's at the right hand of God, that is Jesus, interceding for us. So, so it's like truth is piled upon truth, truth after truth after truth after truth. And here's another truth about the security of salvation. Christ is praying for you. Is it once a week, you think? I don't think so. 
I think it's all the time. Christ is God. He can do that. He's praying for you. In, in back in, in a few verses before this in, in Romans 8, 26, 7, it says the Holy Spirit is praying for you. So you have Jesus Christ is praying for you. Make sure you stay saved. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. This is wonderful truth. This, this, this truth is for the youngest and for the oldest Christians. We need to understand this truth that God is committed. He's sold out. Not ever going to leave us through the Spirit. The work is done. We, we need this. I mean, and, and you raised, if you raise little children, you know, the, the one thing that little children need is what? They need to know the love of the parents. They need to feel secure in that love. And that's what we're talking about here. And that's what Romans 8 really covers, too. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God because when we talk about God's commitment to you, we're talking about his love. He loves you. He loves you. Don't worry. He's going to stay with you. Sometimes life seems hard, very difficult. Where's God? Seems like he's gone. No, he's with you. He's with you. All these things we're saying. Okay, the next point, our security, salvation. God's nature and character motivates him, enables him to keep you safe. First, God has all the power he needs to keep you saved. We read 1 Corinthians 1.8. He will keep you saved. He will keep you saved. He has the ability, the power, and he does it. That's what he does. Two, God has the knowledge, the omniscience, and the wisdom to keep you saved. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 30 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 30 to 31. If you're in Romans, just a few pages to the right. 1 30, but by his doing... You're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that, that first phrase, but by his doing, is what he does. And what we're saying is that nobody's going to undo what God does for us. But then it has three words there. It has righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The word righteousness is referring to the fact that when you were saved, you were born again, you were justified. The word sanctification relates to the present time. You're now being sanctified. You're now being made holy by the Lord. And the word redemption is, again, that future word, redemption, for the day that Christ comes back and you're glorified. So this is what God's going to do, save you. He's going to keep you saved. He's then going to redeem you. That's where he's at. We continue on with these, the nature and the character of God. God is faithful. Every second of every day, he keeps doing what needs to be done to keep you saved. That's what's going on. He is faithful. That verse, he will keep you strong to the end, so be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next verse 9 says, he is faithful. But another verse that I like on this same subject of being faithful is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you want to turn there, you can. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, end of the chapter, verse 23 and 4. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Do you get the strength of those words? He's faithful. He will bring it to pass. If you're truly saved, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. That's, that's, that's what's going to happen. The next point, God loves you so much. And God's love for you is true. It's, it's eternal. It's, it's perfect. It's personal. It's, it's a powerful love. Because God loves you so much that he is going to keep you saved. He's going to do it. That's, what he, that's his plan. It's, it's going to happen. We saw those verses. In fact, go back again, Romans 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Nothing. Nobody. Verse 37, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The theme of, of his love. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. That's what's going to happen. Next, God has specific purposes for your life, and they will not be thwarted. God has planned way, way back in eternity past what he has for you, and his plans for you are not going to be thwarted. And one of those purposes then is that you are one who is saved and stays saved forever and ever. Turn to Isaiah. It's, it's a general verse as we looked at it before, Isaiah 46. But in this context, I want you to see this. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past. I am God, and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Not just carrying out his purpose. He declares it. First of all, he declares it, and then he does it. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from the far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned. Surely I will do it. Again, the strength of the Lord's words. And that God wants us to feel that strength in our own spirit, in our own hearts. That's what he wants for each one of us. So... The character of God. Next, the different aspects, this is point six here, different aspects of your salvation show and prove that God will keep you saved. Ephesians 1, we talked about this, says that God chose you and predestined you to be saved, to be holy in his sight. That is, God decided way back in eternity past to save you and then worked out all the details. He planted all, that's his predestination. He worked all the details out to get you saved, as before you're saved, to keep you saved, what's going on right now, and so that you'd be glorified. All those plans, okay? Now here's the thing. So God then saved you. Okay, this is planet way back before the wolves were made, and then it became a point in time. I don't know when. Maybe you know the exact date. may not. That's not all that important. Because you got saved. And God isn't then going to undo the fact that he chose you, right? That decision he made in eternity past. Oh, I'm going to undo this because of what this person did now. I'm going to undo it. He's not going to reverse his decision to save you? No. He's not going to undo the fact that he actually did save you, and he's not going to undo his plans to keep you saved. He's not going to do it. You get it? It's so simple. It's so important. There's people out there that say, and a lot of people, that say you can lose your salvation. And the Bible is just filled with truth that says that is just a flat-out lie. Next, God made you holy. You have God's righteousness. And God won't ever take away that righteousness, okay? God made you holy. He says you're righteous now. Read this in Romans 3, other places. And he's not going to take it away. He's not going to do it. Thirdly, God redeemed you. He bought you with the blood of his own son, so he now owns you. There is a point in time in the past when you were saved. At that point, then, you were redeemed. And he's not then, there's not then going to be a point in time in the future where he unredeems you, if I can say it that way. Undoes your redemption and says to you, you're not my possession anymore. I don't own you. I'm giving you up. That's not the way it is. Redemption happens. It's permanent. Next, you have Forgiveness. Nothing can happen that can take away for your, your, your forgiveness. Jesus Christ died for you, or God planned for you to be saved, and Jesus Christ died for you, paid for sins, and then the Holy Spirit applied Christ's work to your own heart, to your own life at that time when you got saved. That's what happened. And so you're forgiven all your sins. 
and that forgiveness won't be taken away. This one. You've been adopted into God's family. So now you're his child, okay? You're always his child. You'll never not be his child. I mentioned this example last week, but you're all children. You all have parents, whether they're alive or dead. That's not my point here. The point is you have parents, and they're always your parents, right? And you're always their child. That's the way it is. You can't change that no matter what they do or what you do or what happens. If you have parents, and they're your parents, legitimately so, you're the children. That's the way it'll be. And forever and ever. I mean, whatever happens, that will always be a truth. So here it is with, with the Lord. We're his children and always so. And we mentioned this before, but uh, it's good to say it. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 talks about how God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He gave you the Holy Spirit. And he is not going to take away the Holy Spirit from you. So important, all these things. Next point, your salvation. It's not dependent on you or anyone else, but on God alone. Jonah 2.9, salvation is from the Lord. Revelation 7.10, salvation to our God. We've talked about this truth before, but it must be firmly in your mind that your salvation is not what you do, but what God does for you. Okay? Let me share my testimony briefly. How I thought 50, 60 years ago, back in the 60s, this, this, things were floating around my mind. I was, of course, born in the 50s. About two weeks after I was born, I was physically baptized. Start going to church. I was a regular churchgoer, very, very devout, faithful Catholic. I went to church. I gave money to the church. I said my prayers. I said my rosary. There came a time when I was seven, I believe, that, that I made my first confession, made my first communion, and then I was confirmed later. Okay? But you know what Titus 3 says? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. This is important. I want to do something. I pulled this out this morning when I was at home, and I thought, well, I'm just going to read a little bit of this. This here is what I got back when I was first, made my first communion in 1961, and, and it just got me upset, okay? But we have to see this. Remember how we started off this message? There's a devil out there. And there's lies. Okay, this is how it starts. Well, the first page is indulgence prayer. And when I was a kid, I would pray these kind of prayers. This one's a really good one. I would love these kind because this says if you pray this prayer with a good heart, you'll get 10 years off purgatory. Wow, this is wonderful. I'd pray it. I'd pray it twice. I'd pray it three. Wow, 30 years, 40, 50, 100 years. Okay, then I'd do something else. I, I, really, that's, how I, that's what I thought. Okay, we continue on. It says Stephen James Hogan. Las Vegas, Nevada, St. Anne's Church, May 11th, 61. I got, got communion. A year later or so, April 1st, 62, was in Fonda, Iowa, then it became confirmed. But let me read you some of this. And, and I'm going to go true-false as I read through this. And just listen, because this is how the devil works with a lot of religions. There's truth there, but there's also false, and it's mixed up, and you get really confused if you don't know what's going on. At the baptismal font, you began to share the life of Christ. False. Our Heavenly Father wants the life of Christ to grow in you. True. Holy Mass is the best place to get a rich share of this life of the Spirit. False. On the cross, Christ gave his life, his body, and blood for you. He made this painful sacrifice lovingly so that he could give you himself. True. That's a good line. I like that. Today at Mass, he offers himself, his body, and blood for you again. False. 
they call it the sacrifice of the mass, by the way. It's, it's, it's really sad. Always attend mass with great devotion, and if you can, receive Holy Communion at every mass you hear. Why? Because when you receive Holy Communion, you are accepting what Christ yearns to give you more and more of his life, the life of grace. False. At Mass 2, think of Mary, the mother of Christ. Mary stood at the foot of the cross. It was there in deep sorrow that she became your mother and you became her child. False. May this book, the pictures and the prayers, help you to be devout devout at Mass. The pictures were made with great care. They should make you feel they are very near to the priest. That's these pictures of the priest. The priest, no. no. False, false. There's only one real high priest. That's Christ. It goes on. There's something else here. Let's see what it says here. That's enough. The point is this is there are lies out there. That's why we take time to share the truth. And the particular lie I'm talking about is how people say you can lose your salvation or you need to do all these things to be saved. That's not true. It is just, just not true. Now, when people talk about losing their salvation, they usually talk about, about something they did to lose it. But here's the point. If there's nothing you did to save yourself, there's nothing you can do to unsave yourself, right? Pretty basic. Nothing you can do to unsave yourself. Nothing you can do to lose your salvation. God did it all. Next point. Eighth point here on our security salvation. Your salvation is not dependent on how you feel. We live in a culture more and more goes by how you feel. Walk by faith, not by sight. You may say, well, I don't feel saved. Has that ever happened in your life? You don't feel saved. You don't feel loved. You don't feel forgiven. You don't feel like you're God's child. Of course, it happens to all of us. We go by our feelings. Yeah, that, that's, that happens. We're people with emotions and feelings. But it's not feelings. It's faith. It's trusting God. It's trusting his word. That's what it is. This is from Corinthians, walking by faith, not by sight. This next point, I'll mention it. I mentioned it last week. I'll say it again. Some people in religions believe that you can lose your salvation because of some sin. That was the church I went to. They talk about mortal sins and venial sins, and the mortal sins are the big bad sins, you know, and the venial sins are the smaller sins. But you know what? This is what they said. This is what I was taught 60 years ago. I was taught that if you commit a mortal sin and then you die, but you've not yet confessed that sin before you die, then you go straight to hell. That's what they taught. I mean, they, they really put the fear of God in you. Whoa. If you have this mortal sin, and they weren't even sure what all these mortal sins were. I mean, you know, something bad like murder or something, you know, there's certain, you know, you knew that. But you commit this mortal sin, and you don't confess it, you go straight to hell. So, whoa. So it, that's what they taught. But here's the point. God doesn't differentiate between sins. Jesus Christ died for all our sins. And once we're saved, we're forgiven of all our sins, right? Big sins, little sins, bad sins. Not so bad of sins, however you want to look at it. Sins from the past, present, future. He did it all. If we die right after committed, I'm talking about us here. If we die after committing some, quote, bad sin, we're still going to heaven if we're true Christians. See, what I'm talking about today, you have to understand, I'm talking about true Christians. I'm not talking about people who say they're saved, but they're not saved. There are people like that. There's people all over this country, all over this city who are in churches today that think they're Christians, but they're not. I'm not really talking about them. My whole point here, my main goal here is to help you who are truly saved to know that you're truly saved. That's what I'm saying. First John chapter 2 talks about, hey, those people who walk away from the church, who walk away from fellowship, probably weren't saved anyway. Okay. So if, if there's somebody, well, they're not in church anymore. They lost their salvation. Well, maybe they weren't saved at all. 
Okay, that's, that's the point. And, and again, it's not always super clear because every person's different, every person's situation is different, but that's definitely a point to remember. What we've talked today about today are different truths about your salvation, truths that you need to know and believe. I'm talking about what you need to know and believe in your heart and in your mind, okay? That's what we're saying. This whole thing is about believing truths God gives us in his word, but having assurance that you're a Christian is also based on the fact that you're living a, a godly life, that you're bearing fruit. And I'm not going to take much time in this, but there's some por- it's an important point here. So a, a, a true Christian then, and we all know this, he's living a godly life, and he's bearing fruit. And we, we have the example of the fruits given to us in John, excuse me, Galatians 5.22, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, etc. Okay. So you're, a, a true Christian is bearing fruit. We read about this in John 15 as well. A true Christian is abiding in the Lord, and he's bearing fruit. Okay, But let, let's say you got some, and, and probably to some extent we're all, this next line I'm going to say, we're there before. There's, let's say there's a young Christian or a weak Christian or a carnal ch- Christian, and that kind of Christian isn't bearing a lot of fruit. That's happened. I mean, maybe it was your life, or maybe you know other people like that. You know, they're a Christian, but they're not doing so good. But you really know they're a Christian, okay? You're confident. That, that, that happens. So you have, you have Christians that are really growing and mature and bearing fruit, and they've got Christians that aren't doing so good. That's pretty normal, okay? But then the third category is the person's not bearing any fruit at all. And, and on one hand, you can say that if a person does not bear any fruit at all, that he's not saved at all, okay? Now, there might be some exceptions, you know, where... Whatever, but I, I would generally say if a person isn't categorically bearing any fruit, then he's probably not saved. And what Jesus says in John 15, it says, says, says the, the one who does not bear fruit, he takes away. And so what John 15, verse 6 says a similar thing. It says they're actually cast into the fire. They're dead branches. And you, all, you all know what dead branches are on a bush or a tree. You know, hey, it's not doing anything. You just got it off. You know, I was looking at my rose bush yesterday. There's some dead branches on one of my roses. I probably should clip off some of these, rose, these branches here. And so that, that's the idea here. But that as a true Christian, assurance will have assurance. But if you're not doing so, if it, maybe it relates to you here today. Maybe you're not doing so good as a Christian right now. And you're, oh, how am I doing? How's it, does God really love me or not? There, there's a point there. And there's no doubt that you have more assurance the more you're walking with the Lord, the more you're trusting him, growing in him more that you're bearing fruit. Now, let me take just a minute on this here. And this is one we could take many hours on. The main reason the epistle of 1 John was written so that people could know and have confidence and have assurance of the salvation. That, that's the primary reason for those five chapters in that epistle, okay? And I'm going to go over these here, and it's going to take me about just one minute. What the main marks, I went through the whole epistle, okay, what are the main marks of a Christian is given to us in First John? I'm going to go very simply here. First of all, it says he believes Jesus is the Christ. That is, Jesus came to this earth, we know that he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and did ministry all over the state of, say, the country of Israel. He did ministry, right? We know, then, and what he's saying is, a true Christian believes that this Jesus who was born, who is in the flesh, who had parents, is Christ. He's the Son of God. That's critical. You have to believe that Jesus is, is a man, but also God, that he is God in the flesh. He's the Son of God. That's the first point. The second point is this, that he confesses his sin. This is chapter 1. 
He's one who admits that he sins when he sins. And with that, then, the third point, he lives a holy life. And the next point related to that is he understands that he's forgiven. Okay, all these things are true of a person who knows that they're a Christian. Next, he knows God loves him. That truth is mentioned quite a bit in 1 John. He really believes. He's got confidence. God loves me personally, individually. Then he's one who does not love the world but overcomes the world. And the next, he's one who loves God, 1 John 2, 15, 16. He loves God. And he's one then who, who is in fellowship. He's one then also, it says in chapter 2, other places, he's one who obeys the Lord. And finally, then, he's one who loves other believers. I've gone to those very briefly. All those different points are true of Christians. And God gives you that book and all these areas so that, man, I want to be one who's obedient. I want to be one who's loving God and loving other people. I want to be in fellowship. I want to be confessing my sins. And doing those things then helps us to grow in assurance. That's, that's, that's what happens. Turn to First John. And this is what I said before, but it says it so good. I, I, I love the, 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 the succinctness of these verses, the clarity. First John chapter 5, verse 11. First John 5, 11, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. That same truth. God has given it to us, and he's not going to take it away. This life is in his Son. Then the next point, this is so black and white. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And God wants things to be black and white in our lives, especially as Christians. Black and white. Not, oh, I'm not sure. Oh, maybe. Oh, this is a good day. I'm saved. Hey, yeah, it's a bad day. I'm not. None of that stuff, okay? He wants you to have clarity. He who has the Son has a life. He does not have the Son of God, does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. A thousand percent confidence, conviction that you have eternal life. That's what God wants. Because think about this. I mean, I, I, I've thought, how can somebody, and let, let's say he's really saved, but he's not sure if he can keep his salvation. There's people like that. There's people out there who are saved, but they're in some church that's not teaching the truth and this assurance of salvation, the security of salvation. And how can you live like that? How can you get up on the day and think, man, I could lose my salvation today. You're on pins and needles all day, man. You're walking anxious. Whoa, this is hard. I could lose my salvation today. Oh, I'll just get saved again. Oh, I'll lose. I mean, that, the whole thinking is crazy. To be saved and then lose your salvation, I'll get saved again and lose my... It just, it's not true. It's God says it's true and what's right. Okay, finally, we'll just finish up here. What's the devil's goal? What's the devil's goal for the unbeliever? Devil wants unbelievers What? In general, to believe, hey, you're fine, you're good, you're going to heaven, don't worry about it. I know some believers don't believe in that. They believe that you know, life ends after this physical life here. But for others who believe there's an eternity, oh, you're, you're going to be in heaven. The devil wants you to think that way, give you this false assurance, to think that you're going to heaven when you're not going to heaven, instead going to hell, think that you're saved when you're not saved. That's what he wants you to think. And what's the devil want, non, what's the devil want Christians to think? Make us feel like we're not saved. Of course that's what he wants. To feel like we're not going to make it. That's, that's what he wants. To feel like we're not going to heaven, going to hell. Okay, let's do the next one. What's God want? What's God want for you? We've already talked about this over and over again. 
He wants you to be convinced. He wants you to have assurance of salvation. This is so important. This is basic for every Christian, this assurance, this conviction of uh, to this truth here. And for the unbeliever, what does God want? He does not want them at all to feel like they're saved. He wants them to feel like they're unsaved and to be convicted of their sins and their guilt. He wants them to think that they're going to hell if they don't turn, their, turn to Christ. That's what he wants. That's what God wants, okay? And so God wants non-Christians to see that they need Christ, and what does God want us? He wants us, then, to be ones who are actively, lovingly, faithfully sharing the gospel with people who need Christ. Turn, just a few, finish a couple of verses, Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Verse 16, Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. It speaks of the gospel. Our work as Christians, devote yourselves, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. Important thing, praying for open doors there, verse 3. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to. That's another important thing. Pray that we make it clear. Then conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Great verses, great prayers. And let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, which is true. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that salvation for those who are truly saved, God, is secure. And you make it that way. You're a loving God, a powerful God, a faithful God. And we can trust you, Lord, and know that you're our Father, you're our Heavenly Father, and you love us and we love you. And thank you again for our salvation. I would pray for everyone here, Lord, that I don't know where we're, we're all at with you, but that every one of us here would have more and more of this assurance, this confidence, this conviction, this really this excitement about the fact knowing we're children of God. And we're always going to be children of God, and we'll be in heaven someday, and it'll be wonderful, this truth. Help us to know this, Lord, and if there's others who aren't certain, help us then to share truth with them so they can know. Maybe it's a matter of they're not even saved. Maybe it's a matter of they're saved, but they're just not sure. And that sometimes can be difficult even for us to determine, but God use us as you would wish with believers and with unbelievers. That's what you ask. Help us to be ones who are, are active, Lord, in helping other Christians to grow. Help us to be active then in sharing the gospel with those who don't know you. Thank you, God, for everyone here today. Thank you for Cynthia being here today and Bobby. Do pray for Cynthia her Physical ailments have been difficult, to say the least, but give her your grace and your peace. Help her, Lord, as she's going through life. Just thank you that you have helped her and continue to do that, Lord. We pray that. But pray for Carol, Lord, Lord, too, for her health situation, that, God, you give her grace and peace and, and wisdom to the doctors, to them, too, and, and to Bruce as well. Lord. But, but thank you so much. And others, too, I know who have ailments in our church, one's here, one's not here. We ask you to help us. But thank you so much for this church. Thank you for the love you have for us. Help us to be ones who are in fellowship and ministry, doing the things you want us to do. Again, we thank you for all these things now and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.